Morning. Welcome to St. James. I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, welcome to whoever's watching on the live stream. Um, do me a favor and grab the uh, guest registers at the end of your row and pass those down so that uh, people can sign those uh, and let us know that you're here. Everything's on schedule for today. Actually, uh, youth confirmation is not happening today. That's been uh, postponed till next week. New members class though tonight at six. Join us for Bible study or Sunday school after this as well. Uh, let me run a couple of things by. We have some opportunities to uh, serve our community coming up here and um, let you know what those are. Uh, first of all, the, the Sunday before Easter, sorry, I was trying to think of the date in my head and, and it's not coming to me, but the Sunday before Easter, we are, the, the village is going to put on um, an Easter egg hunt and we have volunteered, the church, our church has volunteered to help them run that. They're actually going to be in charge. But we're going to provide uh, volunteers to hide eggs and to be there as support for that. There is a sign-up sheet for that. I think we need like 20-ish some people. There's a sign-up sheet for that downstairs. Um, on the table up against the wall next to the exit door. So please, uh, that's a great opportunity to help serve the community. Th these are not evangelism opportunities per se. These are, we're going to serve the community and put ourselves in their lives and support the community in such a way that uh, we earn their trust and we become of uh, service and a value to them uh, and live out the gospel in such a way that Jesus would be attractive and uh, hopefully Holy Spirit leading that we'll have good conversations about Jesus uh, flowing out of those relationships. So that's one opportunity, Easter egg hunt. Second opportunity would be, um, uh, now I'm blanking on it, what is it? Is the Easter egg hunt? Oh, the uh, 5K run, yeah. For uh, The village has always had, uh, they call it the cover bridge of 5K, which happens around a homecoming weekend, which you guys know if you live in Glen Carbon, is around, uh, it's, right the, it's the Father's Day weekend. Uh, they had to cancel that last year because they didn't have, they have a group that runs it that, that you know, sets up the route and does all that stuff. But they, don't have, they didn't have any support staff to help take care of the whole thing. So they canceled it. Um, the village asked us if we would be willing to, not to run it, but to provide, like the Easter egg hunt, to provide support staff to that. And so we said yes. There's a sign-up sheet for that. That's real short. That's going to be, there's two groups. One starts at 6 in the morning to 8 o'clock and just does set up and gets everything ready. And then the other group uh, picks up at 8 o'clock or 8.15 and passes out water, uh, points the way on the route. Sign-up sheet, again, same spot downstairs. Uh, one more thing that we can tell you about is um, we're going to provide uh, lunch for the village workers sometime in the summer, a date to be determined. But uh, we're going to have a, a day where we just provide a free lunch for them and let them know. So uh, we'll keep you updated on that, uh, more info on that coming. Uh, so those are, those are good three, three good opportunities for us to serve the community and to get involved in the life of um, uh, the neighborhood of Glen Carbon. I know not all of you are from Glen Carbon, and so, uh, but the church is in Glen Carbon, and so that would be a good opportunity to serve them. I think that's all I have. Let me pray for us, and then we'll uh, jump into worship. Father, we pray that you would revive us, that you would, uh, that you would renew our love and our passion for you, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, blow fresh wind through this place, that you would turn 
our affections towards you, that you would turn our thoughts towards you, that you would reorient our lives, not just for the next hour, but reorient our lives seven days a week towards your kingdom and towards your mission, towards your plan for us. It's not something we can summon up in our own strength. We need your Holy Spirit to do it. And so in the name of your son, Jesus, we're praying and asking you, Father, to send your Holy Spirit on us this morning and renew us again in your image. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. continue in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. 
Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God our Father. Holy and merciful God, in your presence we confess our sinfulness, our shortcomings, and our offenses against you. You alone know how often we have sinned in wandering from your ways, in wasting your gifts, in forgetting your love. Have mercy on us, O Lord, for we are ashamed and sorry for all we have done to displease you. Forgive our sins and help us to live in your light and walk in your ways for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Upon this, your confession, I announce the grace of God to all of you. And in the stead and by the command of my Savior, Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Psalm 95, 1 through 9. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. In his hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Old Testament reading from Exodus chapter 17, uh, water from the rock. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Shin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
All right, Revelation 19 and 20. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute. So, uh, if, the, remember from chapter 17 and 18, that's the city of Babylon, which in, um, in Revelation is symbol for uh, Rome. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then, this is John talking, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. So there's not much of a battle going on here. The beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. This is the dragon we met uh, several chapters ago who was pursuing the child and the child's mother. And threw him into the pit 
and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. John, chapter 4. Glory to you, O Lord, says the, uh, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Well, let me say, give me uh, t- five seconds here. This, this is the woman at the well. This text that we're reading here follows right after the text that we read together on Wednesday evening, which is the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. And you see what John is doing here. What John is doing is, uh, in John chapter 3, he gives you like the apex of the culture, of that, that Jewish culture of the day. This was the highest you could get. Nicodemus was a ruler. He sat on the Sanhedrin. He was a man. He was rich. He was like, this is the greatest you could be as far as being a Jew. And then he gives you the lowest of the low in that culture. Look, it, it's, a, it's a woman. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman of questionable sexual ethics. Jesus is for all of these people. In Jesus' in Jesus's economy, that sort of like gap doesn't exist. He came to save both of them, and they both are in equal positions of needing saving. The rich Jewish man and the poor Samaritan woman. It's John's way of saying Christ came for everybody. All right, let's continue. Sorry about that. Verse 7, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, 
How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you've nothing to draw water with and the well's deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.
19 and 20. This text is famous for being about the millennium. That's kind of what it gets most attention for. The thousand year reign of Christ uh, that shows up down in uh, chapter 21 verse 4. And so I I feel obligated to to preach about the millennium, uh, which I'm going to do. But I think it's important for us to remember that that's not what the text is really about. The text, the, the, the main gist of the text is not for us to ask when the thousand years are, what the thousand years mean. The text is about the destruction of Satan, the final destruction of Satan. We have, uh, up until now, for those of you who've been uh, 
uh, tracking through the uh, Revelation series. We've been doing these cycles of, a lot of times it's cycles of seven, where the whole story of the world from the beginning of Jesus' resurrection until the, the second coming of Jesus is told. And it has to do a lot of times with the evil of the world attacking God and Jesus and attacking God's people, but God's still ruling and reigning. And it keeps on cycling back on itself, stacking up, giving us different elements and pictures of what it, what it looks like to live in the church age. And then it keeps on going back to the beginning and telling the story all over again. But this Sunday in Revelation 19.20, we get to the end. That cycle is now done. This is the last of the cycles. And when we get to the very end, you'll see that it's over. There's no more, well, as we go through here, you'll see that all the bad guys have finally been defeated. And there's no more, the story's over. And next Sunday when we get together, we'll go straight into the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, chapters 21 and 22, which is, that's the good stuff. That'll be, uh, that'll be fun to preach. But for this Sunday, let's talk about this, the final defeat of Satan and the millennium. And uh, I have a section that, that I've prepared for you guys to talk about the time period and to argue for uh, what the thousand year mean? What the thousand years means, and when it's happening. But I'm going to put that off. I, I'll talk about it in adult Bible study for those of you who are going to come down for that, because it's it's going to take up some time, and also it might be a little bit distracting. I, I want to get to the main point, but w- let me just say here what I'll argue for in adult Bible study, and what I'm going to assume in the sermon is that the thousand year millennium, and this is not this is. Uh, this is not anything radical. Most of the church throughout church history has believed this, that the thousand years is, like many of the dates in Revelation, not an exact literal number, actually like, like almost all the numbers there, but it's a, a period of time, the thousand years represents the church age, the time between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. And so that's what I'm gonna argue for, which is actually, this is what we've been talking about all along is what it means to be God's people in the church age, what it means to be God's people living as the church. God ruling and reigning, but the enemy's still attacking. That's kind of what Revelation has been about. So let me just jump in. I'm just gonna point out four key elements, and I think this is gonna be a little bit shorter of a sermon. I'm trying to accommodate the longer uh, scripture readings. Four key elements uh, in this text about the millennium um, that... that uh, but there's more than that. Let, let, let's just stick with four. And we're going to not spend a whole lot of time in Revelation 19. We'll be in Revelation 20 a lot. So you can look over at the, this is either Revelation 20 in your Bible or at the second page of the readings uh, in your bulletin. So four key elements. The first key element I want to point out to you is the kingdom and priesthood of the saints. Now we're used to thinking of Jesus as king. We're used to thinking of Jesus as our high priest. But Revelation 20 insists, along with the rest of the New Testament, that believers are actually kings and priests with God as well. So look at verse 4, into verse 4, that those who hadn't uh, received the mark of the beast, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So that's during the church age. Believers, uh, these are believers who've been martyred, uh, are reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Uh, This is the first resurrection. Look at verse 6. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Those who have died in Christ, sometimes people, sometimes Christians ask the question, 
Like, so what are they doing? Like, what are our, what are our, the ones who we love who've passed away and are with Christ, what are they doing right now? And the answer is, is that they're reigning with Christ in heaven and they're ruling with Christ in heaven. And they're being priests, uh, reigning and ruling are the same thing. They're being priests with Christ in heaven is what this text says. What does this mean? It means that they're in charge. Is that God exercises his authority over the universe through his people who have passed on. My grandfather, who is with Jesus right now, is ruling and reigning with Jesus. over. The, he's, not, he's not the ultimate authority, of course. God is the ultimate authority. But right now, my grandfather is functioning as king and priest over creation, over the universe. And it's not just those who have died. It's actually, weirdly enough, it's us too. You guys are the kings and queens of the universe. You are the high priest and the high priestesses of Glen Carbon. This is what 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says. It says, you are, this is Peter talking to the church, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You guys are royal and you're priests. You're both kings and priests. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, so I, I know, so if you're like me, you don't feel like royal or a priest. I don't feel like I'm in charge of anything. In fact, I feel like there's a million different things that are in charge of me. There's a million different people. There's a million different schedule points. There's a million different job requirements, school requirements that are in charge of me. I don't feel like I'm a priest. I don't feel holy to the Lord. I don't feel like I'm a conduit of his righteousness to the people around me. I feel like I'm desperately in need of a priest. I'm desperately in need of somebody to, 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 to give righteousness to me. And yet, in spite of how I feel, the Bible insists that this is who we are. We are rulers and priests of Glen Carbon here. So how do we do this? How are we going to be rulers and priests? Well, the answer comes back in chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. And I, I don't want to read this whole thing. It's this description of Jesus sitting on a white, white horse. His name's Faithful and True. Look at verse 13. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name, this is his own blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This is who Jesus is, is he is the Word of God. He's the communication of God to us. Look at verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Do you remember the description of Jesus back in chapter, all the way back in chapter one? He actually had a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. Again, this is Revelation. It's apocalyptic. None of this is literal. There's no, Jesus is actually not riding around on a white horse with an, a literal sword waving from his mouth. This is highly a magic language to say to us that when Jesus conquers those who are against him, when Jesus rules over us, when we rule over the world, we will do so with a sword, but not the kind of sword that can actually kill people. The kind of sword, it's the word of God, where God speaks and does what he's going to do. And for those who reject the word of God, it's a painful experience. And those who accept the word of God, it's a life-giving experience. But we rule and reign through the word of God. We rule and reign by living out the gospel, by living out God's word here in Glencrest. It's one of the reasons why we're gonna help out with the Easter egg hunt is because for us to sit kind of hunker down inside these walls is not what God has called us to do. God has called us to be 
his body, the body of Christ, out in the community and serving the community. They're going to meet Jesus if they meet the body of Christ. And so, and, and honestly, not many of them are coming in here to check us out. It's just not the way people treat church nowadays. And so we should be doing what the church is always supposed to have been doing, is going out there, being the gospel, being the sword out of Jesus' mouth out in the world because we've been called to be kings and we've been called to be priests. Well, so what are we, so how is this, it doesn't seem, what can we do? Like, what can we do? Can we actually turn back the tide of evil? Can we defeat the enemy in Glen Carbon? Can we convert Glen Carbon for Christ? I, I don't know if big, like, let's do something huge goals are always realistic. I don't know if that's, I'm not Jesus. I mean, sometimes God does huge stuff through little people. But frequently, God rules and reigns through little people doing little things. Little people doing average, ordinary things. And so I'm going to talk about, like, helping out at the Easter egg hunt. For those of you who do that, you know what that's going to be. You're going to be, like, holding these little plastic-colored ovoids filled with candy and hiding them in the grass so little kids can find them. Is this really that big of a deal? Is that really going to accomplish a lot? You're going to go home and you're going to make food for your family and you're going to do laundry and you're going to sweep the porch and you're going to make sure that you get yourself up to work tomorrow morning. Is any of this a big deal? And actually there's two ways to look at it. Of course is like no, it really isn't. It's the stuff you do every day, right? It's not that, it's just ordinary things. Probably hiding Easter eggs is not going to convert the entire village of Glen Carbon to Jesus. Let's let Jesus worry about that and let's do what we're called to do, which are little things, but are frequently big things precisely because they're done in the name of Jesus by little people doing little things. There's this scene in the Lord of the Rings where uh, this company that is, is, is uh, charged, so if you, if you know what the Lord of Rings is about, they're charged with destroying this object, which has been kind of a conduit of evil to the world. But a lot of them are like, especially the, the four hobbits are like, we can't, like we're just, we're literally, they're little people. That's, we can't do anything big. Like what, what are we supposed to do? And one of the characters in there gives him a little speech in which he says this, I'm going to quote it to you. Uh, you have to do this. This is what you're called to do. The road must be trod, but it will be very hard, and neither strength nor wisdom will carry us far upon it. This quest may be attempted by the weak with as much hope as the strong. Yet such is often the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world. Small hands do them because they must, while the eyes of the great are elsewhere. And so, Ruling and reigning, I think it's one of the things that the New Testament is showing us, ruling and reigning, ruling and reigning over God's creation is frequently just doing the small things in the name of Jesus. So I was just reading in the book of Acts, this is just off the top of my mind, just reading in the book of Acts recently about how uh, Peter raised this woman called Tabitha from the dead. And um, he raised her from the dead because people call to him and say, can you come here and help her? She's dead. Well, so obviously this community deeply loves her. Why is this? Is it because she's this great patroness in their community, rich and doling out money for them all to like survive on? Like she actually supports financially the church. No. 
Well, is she, is she this powerful prophetess by which many people are hearing the gospel and coming to Christ? No. When Peter gets there, do, do, do you remember this? What is, it, what is it that they're like, hey, let us show you, before you go view her dead body, we want to show you like, what she's produced here. Do you know what it is? It's a bunch of like tapestries and weavings. That's, this is what the community's been impressed with her. Somehow, she gets up and she makes clothing. She makes tapestries. And that has been a cause for a group of people around her to learn about the love of Jesus in such a way that when she dies, they're desperate for an apostle to come and help out, which Peter does. He raises her from the dead. What you do every day has great eternal value. Do not let, do not let the, 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 the enlightenment lie to you and say, okay, church stuff, but then I'm gonna go to my job or I'm gonna go to school or I'm gonna go do my hobbies. And those are just kind of things I tinker around with because I have to have money. No, actually what you're doing, the small things you're doing, God is using those to rule and reign and to be priest over his creation in whatever ways that is happening at your place of employment or at your, uh, you know, in your neighborhood or at your uh, local tennis club or wherever it's at or your school. Second of all, the binding of Satan during the church age. Verse two of chapter 20 says, God seizes, Jesus seizes the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and binds him for a thousand years. So Satan is bound. Can I make, I need to talk real quick here about, about Satan being real because, and I always, do, I, I try to do this sometimes when I talk about Satan because he feels so old fashioned. He feels like, you know, talk about Satan and, and evil demons lurking back there. It just seems so superstitious and, you know, seems so medieval. Um, what are our options? And you've heard me say this before. What are our options to Satan? Well, one way that our culture deals with evil is to ascribe it to uh, biological, uh, biological reasons. And Chuck and I just talked about this on the podcast, Craving Answers, Craving God. So there's an episode uh, coming out about Satan, and I don't think it's for a few weeks. But um, in that episode, we talk about this. Bad things happen, and you can say, just biological, you know, people struggle with mental health issues. And, and I, I brought up in there um, this guy a couple years ago. Do you remember this? He, he, flew, he flew commercial airliners um, for um, a European commercial airline. And he's a co-pilot. Pilot, they're flying. I, I, if, I, if I remember right, they were flying from Italy up over the Alps, up into, you know, Germany or Austria or something. And pilot gets up to use the restroom. The co-pilot, thanks to 9-11, um, uh, precautions, the, the cockpit door is locked, and the co-pilot's in there by himself, and once he's alone, he programs the um, uh, autopilot to fly straight into the mountains, but, but at kind of a gradual slope, not straight down, and everybody in the plane is freaking out and beating on the door. We know this from the cockpit voice recorders, unfortunately, but they can't get in, and the plane smashes into the side of the mountain, and everybody on the plane is killed. And so the, the, the media, when they discussed this, attributed this to his mental health issues, which that's true. A lot of us have mental health issues, though, and not many of us are killing people through it. There, there has to be, if we're going to understand these things, there has to be places to talk about mental health issues. That's true. But there also has to be places to talk about evil, that, that, the, that there is something out there that's personally vindictive. I, I also mentioned on the podcast um, uh, I've been listening to a, a, a series of podcasts about uh, World War II. Harry and I are both super interested in World War II history. 
There's something about, and this is not anything new, there's something demonic about Hitler, of course. But I was struck recently with something that seems to me to be also satanic that doesn't actually get brought out. And that is that when, when Hitler first comes to power, he's an absolute genius. Like he is the greatest politician of all time. Like he manages to come to power through elections. When he's just like this, he actually for, for, for quite a long time, he's homeless, doesn't really have any like noticeable skill set. He politically maneuvers himself into power. He politically maneuvers, he politically conquers Czechoslovakia and Austria without a shot being fired. And he, like even Time Magazine is heralding him as like the greatest politician of all time. He's absolutely, everything he touches turns to gold. When he does invade Poland and then France, every military decision he makes is perfect. So they, they, they conquer uh, Poland and France with, with barely a setback. It's like everything he does is He's a genius. And then all of a sudden, everything he does is a failure. He attacks Russia, and everything goes south. Every, every decision he makes is wrong. And what happens? What is, what is up with that? It's almost as if there's something personal toying with him. Using him to accomplish great evil, and then destroying him when he's done with it. What is, that, what is that personal thing behind it? Okay, on a much, micro, much more micro level, and here I'm, I'm sort of pulling on C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, which some of us read recently. There's something personal about the evil that attacks us. I know it. The temptation that I receive, it's not just biological, although that's a part of it. It's not just my mental health issues, although that's a part of it too. There's something about the, the way the enemy tempts me in moments when I'm weakest, in moments when my guard is down, I will find thoughts coming to my head. I will find urges compelling me that I'm just surprised that show up at that point in time. And then sometimes they'll go away. Sometimes I won't have any problem, you know, losing my temper or giving in to lust or stealing or being angry at my coworkers. I can be real, and then all of a sudden, there it is. And frequently, like Paul says in Romans 7, frequently it's when I'm more mindful of Jesus that all of a sudden something will go after me. And there's a reason why the New Testament tells us to, James tells us to resist the devil so that he flees from us because the devil needs resisting. This is not just sort of random. It's not, again, it's not just biological or psychological. That's a part of it. But there's something personal and evil about it. But the good news is that in the church age, Jesus has bound Satan. Now, I just gave a bunch of illustrations about how Satan is active in doing bad things. What does it mean that Jesus has bound Satan? Well, we'll get back to Jesus. We'll get back to Satan in just a second. And, uh, but, but first of all, let me just point out that Jesus himself says, he explains in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 12, he says, so he has a group of people who say to him, a group of religious people who say, you only have the power to cast out demons because you're working for Satan himself. And Jesus says, that doesn't actually make sense. Why would Satan want me to cast out demons? Wouldn't Satan want more more demons? Instead, he says, here's what's happened. Jesus says, if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. What is Jesus saying? How can I cast out demons? Jesus says, because I've gone into the strong man's house 
and I've tied the strong man up, and now I can plunder his goods. In the metaphor there, Satan is the strong man. His house is the world. Jesus has gone into Satan's house, tied Satan up, and now he can take his goods away from him. The people that Satan has controlled, Jesus can take. What does it mean? It means, well, exactly what Revelation 20 says it means, that Jesus has bound Satan. Satan now, now no longer is able to act in the way that he wants to act. He's under control. This is why the gospel has spread so rapidly in the past 2,000 years. It's why Christianity right now is the fastest growing religion in the world. Not in the United States, but in the world, it's the fastest growing religion. Because Satan has been bound and the Holy Spirit has not been bound. And the score on the scoreboard reflects that. Satan has been bound. Okay, so now let's go back to Satan. Why is it still the case then that like I need to fight against him? Why is it still the case then that like I, f I, I get attacked by him frequently? Well, the answer is, is because Satan, I don't know how this works. Satan has been bound and yet God has given him a little bit of a leash. First Peter 5 says, Satan is a roaring lion roaming around through the earth, seeking people to devour, seeking to devour you. That's why James says you must resist him so that he flees from you. He's still active and he's still doing things. Well, why, I got, I got a lot of questions about this. I guess I can boil it down to my main question would be, why would God allow that? Why would God give Satan that leash to be active? Even though chained up and to not have the, to, to be able to do the chaos and the evil and the destruction that he wants to, why would Satan be allowed to do anything at all? I, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that, except for God has decided to do it that way. Can I do one more Lord of the Rings reference? There's, uh, we, I, as, I find myself kind of in the position of Reeve uh, right now. So Reeve is... For those of you who've read The Lord of the Rings, I can't talk about the ending because Reeve and I are reading it together, Reeve for the first time, but we're reading it together and we're in the third book, The Return of the King. So I can't tell you how it ends if you don't know. If you do know, you're kind of in this exclusive group of cool people. I use cool in scare quotes, of course. Uh, nerds is probably more, more like it. And one of the questions when I first read The Lord of the Rings, and I, Reeve actually hasn't asked this to me, is like, why is Gollum allowed to continue traveling with Frodo and Sam. Gollum is clearly evil. Gollum wants to destroy Frodo and Sam. In fact, Reeve and I just, uh, again, if you have ears to hear, Reeve and I just read where Gollum actually intentionally led them into Shelob's lair so that Shelob could kill them. And yet, ever, like the, the leaders, including Frodo, agree, Gandalf agrees, you must let Gollum go with you. He still has a part to play. And if you get to the end of the story, which Reeve and I will get to, you'll say, oh, that's why Gollum, as evil as he is, was allowed to continue. And our problem is, is that we're still at the beginning of volume three in the story of the millennium, in the story of the church age. Why would God let Satan out? We don't know, but we do know this. Satan has been bound. God has, I don't whatever this means, God has some kind of purpose and role for Satan still to play in his story, but it's underneath God's control. I, uh, Satan is evil. He's trying to devour you. He is, he is attacking the church. 
And yet God has, in his sovereignty, God is writing this incredibly dramatic and beautiful story in which even the enemy is a tool that God is using to someday accomplish his purposes. And if I don't know what that is, it's simply because I haven't read the end of the story yet. But someday I will read the, we'll all, we'll be, we'll, write, we'll help write the end of the story together. And when we do, we'll be able to say, that's what's going on. Now we get it. Painful, yes, but beautiful also. So Satan has been bound, although he still has a role to play. Okay, two quick final points and then we'll be done. Third thing is, so the first thing is the kingdom and priesthood of me and you. Second thing is the binding of Satan during the church age. The third thing is the final victory. So the defeat, the final defeat of Satan. Verse 10 of chapter 20, uh, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. So the beast and the false prophet have already been beaten. Babylon was destroyed last week. I'll put more on that in just a second. And now the devil is destroyed. He's finally thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. They'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the final defeat of Satan at the end of the millennium is guaranteed. Satan, who has caused all this evil in the first place, will finally be destroyed. The final elimination of death, verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The final, de- the final elimination of Hades also. So Satan... Death and Hades. Hades, by the way, in the ancient world is the prison house of the dead. Those who have died are kept in this prison until God does some sort of great act to release them. We call that the resurrection from the dead by the power of Jesus' resurrection. But on the last day, our three great enemies, Satan, death, and Hades, will finally be defeated forever and ever. And now you know why in the garden, when Peter got his sword out, Jesus said, Put your sword away. I'm not fighting against Rome. I'm not, or Babylon here in the book of Revelation. But put your sword away. Don't you know, Jesus says, I could call, if I wanted to play that game, I could call 12 legions of angels right now and completely run the universe. I could be established as the king of the universe. We could blow up Rome easy if I wanted to. But put your sword, why did Jesus say that? Jesus said that because Babylon is bad. The Roman Empire is bad. And it's a reset of previous sermons, the previous text of Revelation. Any political entity that is opposed to God is bad. Any cultural entity that's opposed to God is bad. Any corporate economic entity that is opposed to God is bad. If we could get rid of them, though, the evil wouldn't be done away with. You could get rid of Rome, but it wouldn't do away with the evil that powers Rome. Who's that? Well, it's the beast. It's Nero. It's the Hitlers of the world. It's the the humans who are completely given over to evil. Okay, so let's get rid of them. Well, if you could get rid of Nero, you still wouldn't be done with the evil in the world because there's dark evil forces behind the beasts, behind the Babylons of this world. There still is Satan. And Jesus, is it like Jesus who's being attacked by flies as he's on his way to a battle? Jesus is not gonna stop and deal with the pestering flies. He has bigger fish to fry than Babylon. He has bigger fish to fry than the bad guys. He's going after Satan. And the guarantee, this final victory, is the victory over Satan and death and hell. And at the end, that's who Jesus defeats. And then there's no more space for the Babylons of the world. There's no more space for the beasts of the world because the dark forces that controlled them and the dark things, death and hell, that they used as tools to control people are done away with. Fourth thing. The final thing is this marriage of the lamb with his people. Chapter 19, go back to chapter 19, verse six. 
Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Okay, let me point this forward real quickly. I don't want to spend too much time here, although I could, towards the new creation next week. God's people are described as a bride here. Babylon was described as a prostitute, a sort of like a fake bride, fake intimacy, fake relationship, because Babylon itself is a fake city. The cities of this world are fake. They're imitations of the true city that God is going to show us built in Revelation 21 and 22 next week. And the Babylon functions as fake relationship, a replacement, a shadow of the real relationship that God has designed you and me for, the marriage between us and Jesus. The marriage that your marriages, for those of you who are married, always pointed to, but could never quite fulfill the dreams you had for them. Everybody feels like this when you get married or when you, like, when you finally meet somebody that you're like, this is my best friend. You always feel like, okay, this is it. I'm finally fulfilled. I'm finally there. And it's not, it's not, you don't have to be married too long before you realize I'm actually not there. <laughs> this hasn't been the fulfillment as, as wonderful as some of our marriages are. It's never quite the fulfillment that you hoped it would be. And it's always temporary. There's always death there. Sometimes divorce, there's always death there. But it's always pointing towards something else. All of our relationships are always pointing towards this place that we've been trying to get to our whole lives. This, this, this place we've been trying to get to our whole lives where we are completely known. Everything is known about us and still we're completely 100% accepted. Where we can love without any fear of betrayal and love it, be loved in return and know that that love will always be ours, no questions asked. We've always longed, we, we know who we are. You know the thoughts that go through your head. You know that if, if, that if somebody gave you like some sort of magical truth serum and you had to say out loud everything that you've thought in your head the past 24 hours, that you would never be able to face anybody again, especially the people closest to you, you know that. And yet, you know, nobody else knows that but you. Only you know how you really feel about your friends or about your spouse or about your kids, the thoughts that you've had about your kids or the thoughts that you've had about your parents. Only you except for God. God knows every nasty thing that you do. He knows every horrible thought that you've ever thought. And you know what God says about those? He says in verse eight, it's been granted you to clothe yourself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is your righteous deeds. God knows you inside and out, and he says, I see you as perfection. Nobody in the entire world sees me as perfection. Not even my mom, believe it or not, sees me as perfection. Especially myself, except for when God looks at me, he says, Aaron, I love you completely. There is not a single thing in the world that can separate us. What do we call that? We call that the marriage supper of the Lamb. And you and I, it's been promised to us already, but it will one day be fulfilled. We will one day finally be at home, that place that you've longed for your whole life but never quite have gotten to. And when we chase it, you know, some of us chase it with the relationships. Some of us ch chase it with jobs and the new job. Some of us chase us with actually literal houses. 
you know, I, I need to move and find a new space. And then you're like, oh, this is really cool. And then it wears off and maybe you find a different space. We all find, but, but, but what, what's being said here is that they're, they're, that place is out there. And that place is called Jesus. Being married to him. So that's the promise. We're gonna pack, unpack that next week, exactly what that looks like. God is on your side. He sees you as pure. He sees you as holy. He promises that you are his bride and he will be married to you forever. No questions asked. Absolutely 100% in love with you forever and ever in Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for calling us to this marriage. Thank you for defeating our enemies, not the enemies that we see in the surface of our lives, God, many of whom aren't really our enemies, but our people in the process of coming to know you. Thank you for defeating our real enemies, Satan and death and, uh, and hell. Keep us safe from the schemes of the enemy. Clothe us with the armor of your son, Jesus Christ. Keep us pure and holy into the day when your, when your son, Jesus, returns and makes all things new. And we pray this in his name, amen.
Please stand for prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us and for your promise to be our father and for us to be uh, your children, for your promise to be our shepherd and for us to be your sheep, for your promise to be our God and for us to be your people. And if this relationship depends upon our faithfulness to it, Lord, you know that the covenant has been broken by us and will be broken by us. We desperately need your faithfulness which you always have been from the very beginning, God. You've never left us or forsaken us. You've joined us to your son, Jesus Christ, in baptism, and you've made his faithfulness to us, our faithfulness, God. You've called us righteous, and you've even called our deeds righteous and holy, which is totally beyond our comprehension. Lord, don't leave us. Don't abandon us. Uh, you know that we, have, we only have strength in you. We only have holiness in you. We only have righteousness in you. Lord, in your mercy. Father, be with all who are struggling today. I pray that you would be with everyone who's struggling with physical health issues and mental health issues. I pray that you'd be with all of us who are worried about any number of different things. I also pray, Father, and this prayer is for every single person in this room, I pray that you would guard us against the attacks of the enemy, that you would make us mindful of his attacks, that you would help us not to try to defeat his temptations uh, his temptations to sin, his temptations to worry, especially his temptations to doubt your love for us, that you would help us not to defeat those in our own strength, God, but help us to, to having your full armor on us, Father, that you would defend us through the righteousness and the faith and the holiness and the word, your word, which you've given to us, Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray that you especially this morning be with uh, Pastor uh, Weiss, who is uh, struggling with pneumonia, and that you would give his body healing, pour strength and energy into him, be with Janice, she cares for him, and uh, help him to bounce back and to be up as good as new as soon as possible. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray that you would be with our ministries at, here at St. James, and that you would give us a heart for the community, and as we begin to step outside of ourselves and to do things to serve as a group, many of us have been doing things as individuals, but as a group, step out and begin to minister in your name that you would bless Glen Carbon because of our presence here. May our church be the kind of place that even if people don't attend here and even if some people very much disagree with what we believe, Father, that you would make this church a place that everybody knows is indispensable to the life of the community. Help us to love Glen Carbon in such a way to make that possible. And I especially pray for our ministries uh, Lord, this morning I pray that you be with our international student ministries and the ministry of uh, Sue Hasselbring as she ministers to college students who are from overseas and who are sometimes uh, lonely and homesick and need help in the culture, many of whom don't know you. Would you bless her in that ministry? Would you also be with our ministry clarity process here this year as we uh, think through what you've called us to be as a church and what your plans for our mission here and that you'd be with uh, Eric as he leads us in that. Lord, in your mercy. We pray these things because you're a good God and because you do love us and you have called us your bride and you've invited us uh, into your throne room as family. And so we pray these prayers with boldness in the name of our uh, Savior, Jesus. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. 
Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and everlasting God, for the countless blessings you so freely bestow on us and all creation. Above all, we give thanks for your boundless love shown to us when you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into our flesh and laid on him our sin, giving him into death that we might not die eternally. Because he's now risen from the dead and lives and reigns to all eternity, all who believe in him will overcome sin and death and will rise again to new life. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Glory to you, O Lord, in the highest. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. Jesus, Lamb of God, have mercy on us. Jesus, bearer of our sins, have mercy on us. Jesus, redeemer of the world, grant us peace. Amen. You may be seated.
Please stand. And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Make sure that you're building a relationship. Don't leave without having a good conversation with somebody before you go. Go in peace.